I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending July 5th. This week, facial recognition is being deployed more frequently, but is the technology ready and are we ready for it? President Trump said he's lifting official restrictions on doing business with Huawei, an important supplier to communications companies all around the world. What does that mean for the global electronics industry moving forward? And we talk with Silicon Valley entrepreneur Alex Lido about Moore's Law, gallium nitride, and easing at least one of the indignities of aging. First on today's program, facial recognition. It's already being used to keep your phone secure and to help fight crime, but just like any other tool, it can be mishandled. It's very easy to violate privacy with facial recognition. Also, just like any other tool, it can be deliberately misused. There are documented instances of governments using facial recognition to intimidate their citizens, not protect them. EE Times and its sister publications recently published a series that examined technology at the intersection of privacy and security. Editor Sally Ward-Foxton's contribution was an article on facial recognition. International editor Junko Yoshida caught up with Sally to learn more. I was really fascinated by your latest story about facial recognition, the ugly truth. It was interesting to me because I thought this story, this particular story, offered the perfect nexus of technology and regulations. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, Certainly the technology is coming along leaps and bounds, but I think we still are playing a catch up a little bit with uh, the law and the regulatory framework. Yeah. Now, what struck me um, reading your article was that, uh, you know, it, it sort of begged the question, what's the state of accuracy in face recognition technology today? Tell me. So it's still pretty heavily application dependent, I think, Uh, in something like a a passport gate where you're walking through, you look directly at the camera, you're close to the camera, it's good lighting, then it can be very accurate. But for surveillance footage, uh, results can definitely vary. Uh, In the field trials that the British police did, uh, they misidentified 96% of the uh, (laughs) people. It wasn't very accurate at all. So there are a lot of false positives, let's put it that way. Wow. That's 96% kind of tells us either the technology is not ready at all or something fundamental, fu- fundamentally wrong about the technology. What, what's your take on this? Uh, I think it is a very difficult environment. Uh, so the police had cameras on top of a van, literally just looking at people's faces as they were, were walking by. It is a very difficult environment. Ah. Um, and I think we do need to do more tests and, uh, and figure out exactly where we're going wrong. So as for these trials in the UK you just mentioned on face recognition, um, how did the society, I'm talking about the media and public, respond? So there was certainly a lot of uh, coverage of it in the media. Uh, Some of the civil liberties organizations over here made a lot of noise about it. particularly because there isn't really a legal framework for the the use of this technology. We don't know exactly what the police are going to do with this data, how long will they store it for. Uh, And in particular, uh, there's been one kind of landmark legal case, uh, which is a guy in South Wales who is uh, suing the police effectively, saying that his civil liberties have uh, been infringed. Good for him, (laughs) actually. Yeah, Yeah, because the reason why I say it is that... um, you know, uh, low accuracy of the technology itself is clearly a concern, but even more worrying is, as you said, the lack of 
framework, right? Lack of clear guidance or regulations in the application of face recognition or face analysis technologies. So walk us through that. What's the regulatory landscape in the UK and maybe in Europe at large? So it's still, I think it's still unclear. Um, currently in the UK, I believe there are some very comprehensive rules for when the police can take your fingerprint, so your DNA, but UK law doesn't really cover other biometric data. It's all about fingerprints, DNA, how long can the police store that data? What can they do with it? Uh, that kind of thing. Uh, we do have the, uh, under EU law, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, this kind of broadly covers personal data. Biometrics is mentioned, but uh, I think it's looser or broader than some people would like. <laughs> I see, okay. So, you know, this is really a hard question uh, to a technology journalist, but do you think it's time to call for a moratorium on this technology, in your opinion? Yes, absolutely. I definitely think it would be time to hit pause on this a little. Uh, now that we've had the results from the, the British trials, it wasn't so accurate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we know uh, from, we've talked about this in previous projects, previous articles, uh, we know AI definitely is more likely to misidentify women and people of color. Right. So it's not accurate. It disproportionately misidentifies certain groups of people. It certainly made me think twice about whether if I saw the police camera van in the street, would I turn around and walk the other way? Um, I mean, I, I'm not a person of color, but I am a woman, you know, I would, I would, I would, yeah. I would be more likely to be misidentified than other people. So yeah, it's something I would be concerned about for sure. Global leaders gathered at the G20 summit in Japan last weekend. U.S. President Donald Trump and China's President Xi Jinping met and unexpectedly came to an agreement that was vague on details but seems to reset the trade war back to its status from several months ago. The U.S. would remove trade restrictions, notably those on Huawei, and China pledged to buy more U.S. agricultural products. Trump's assault on Huawei has been incredibly disruptive to the global electronics industry. I got on the phone with international editors Junko Yoshida and Balaji Ojo to discuss what might happen next. How does the electronics industry proceed? Of course, all of that is contingent on where we are right now. I asked Junko and Bola about the de-escalation in the trade war. Well, I must inject myself here, Brian. I don't think anything is de-escalated. It just put a <laughs> pose, I think. <laughs> I don't think that the, the, we are in a position to say things has gotten any better. Maybe you could say that, but it's not much of de-escalation, in my opinion. Well, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, uh, Balaji has been talking about the uncertainty about what's going on here, and that hasn't alleviated, has it, Balaji? No, it, no, it hasn't. I think what's, more, what's happening has to do more with just a reassessment of the situation. If I was a business executive right now, I would not be pulling back from whatever I was drawing up before. I wouldn't even think that anything has changed enough for me to say, stop, don't do anything else again. Right. But the, 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 here's the thing, though. What were you doing now until now? Were you stopping exporting your goods to China? Or I, I guess it depends on a company. But when you say that they're not changing strategy, what does it mean? I don't get that. Well, I, I guess the, the point is that if you had uh, a best case scenario option yep. and you had a worst case scenario option and uh, most likely 
to happen option, you still continue to put in place every single action and steps that will help you execute any one of them that comes up because there isn't a sign that you can rule out any, any one of these. It's still there. All of it is driven by the unknown. And that unknown remains a huge presence in the room. You still got to deal with that. Right. Okay. So next steps are going to be difficult for everybody. Before they were considering uh, changing all their supply chains and uh, whether they're going to continue to do business with their the the partners that they've had so far, uh, it may be worried that uh, maybe worried that or fear that uh, uh, the ban from China will be reinstituted and then where are you? Or you know maybe they're just going to have to rethink what their relationships are. Everybody's afraid of, of what going to happen next still i think i guess we have to think about uh the, uh, the everybody i mean every company on earth outside china must be thinking about plan b and uh that plan b is still i think the bolaji's point is that plan b still can't totally ignore china because china is the biggest market you know in terms of a consumption mm-hmm. so what do we do now i mean um, what kind of strategy do we develop then i think that uh um you continue to try to sell into china as best you can um i think that's going to be tougher moving forward for u.s yeah. based companies uh the trust is gone Uh, If there was any trust there before, it's been shattered and obliterated. Um, If I were uh, somebody who had a business in China, uh, if I were a Chinese company, I'd start looking for alternate sources of technology or, again, redoubling my efforts to, um, to, to develop my own IP, intellectual property. That's true. That plan B is, uh, goes both ways, doesn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, so China, Chinese companies also already are developing plan B in many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, it go, yeah, that's, that's true. That's a good point, Brian. But what, I w- what I would like to add is very simply this. You know, let's, let's go back to what is driving this. What drove China into determining that it wants to dominate a particular segment of the of the industry? Uh, what's driving the U.S. into saying, "Look, we don't want such a huge Chinese presence in this part or whatever"? It's fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what the other party might do. Now, it's today it's between the U.S. and China. Who's to say it's not going to be between the U.S. and Germany, the U.S. and France, France and the U.K., the U.K. versus uh, Russia or whoever tomorrow? That fair has to do with what's happening in the technology world. In my opinion, technology has become such a huge part of what everyone does now that we don't even know what kind of trajectory it's going to have. We don't know, you know what kind of tra- technology is going to come up tomorrow that's going to upend the current environment, the current political environment, who's leading, who's likely to drop off and all that. Fear is a factor. It's driving governments, it's driving businesses, and there is no way you can prepare for that. And it's two kinds of fear. It's economic fear. Uh, are we going to maintain? Uh, earlier, we mentioned that uh, China has a plan uh, for 2025 or to, to develop its own technology. And you use the word dominance, but I'm not sure that China ever did. I think China had always talked about uh, self-sufficiency. Um, it's a fine distinction, but uh, the trade war was about 
dominance. Um, and, and I think that has increased the fear you're talking about. Um, if somebody says, I think we all ought to get together and increase the pie, and then everybody's pie slice gets bigger too. The alternative is, we're going to make the pie bigger, and I'm going to take most of the pie. That creates fear and uncertain, you know, more fear, more uncertainty. And I think that's kind of what the the spat kind of revolved around, uh, you know, dominance versus just creating a bigger pie. So there's an economic worry now moving forward. Um, who's going to try to eat my lunch as opposed to who's going to, sh- you know, share a bigger lunch and bring, you know, more stuff to the picnic. And the other fear is, as you said, political. Um, we're worried that the government of China might exploit um, its relationship with uh, Huawei, whatever that relationship is, and uh, use that for espionage or disruption of some sort. Um, and the fear is probably legitimate on the U.S. side because the U.S. has been doing that. With, with every new technology, with every new advancement comes this tug of war between what was Mm-hmm. what is and mm-hmm. what we all hope will become yes this war is about who's going to dominate who's going to control the future in the political sphere and in the economic sphere technology has now become so pervasive that there isn't a way by which you can exercise it from the economy you can exercise it from the political world or anything like that so if the guys that we report about, the, the Qualcomm, the Intel, the Huawei, and all of them, if they're wondering now how they have been sidelined by political leaders, well, maybe they should look in the mirror. They created the technology <laughs> <laughs> that has yeah. now made them beat players in the same in the same tournament that they're supposed to kind of... I mean, Huawei is supposed to go against Ericsson. Huawei is not going against Ericsson right now. It's going against the U.S. government. So there you go. There's, this is what we have now. And I don't know how that's going to be resolved. And, and, and whatever agreement came out of China and the U.S. last weekend doesn't point to any solution either. Well, no, it's, okay. a, it's a Band-Aid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the thing, Brian, and I'll just kind of wrap this up on my side with this. Whatever agreement finally comes out of this, two governments, two political leaders are going to sign it. And then they're going to hand it over to the technology world to go and implement. They're going to say, well, the U.S. government and the Chinese government have agreed this is the new playing field that we've leveled for you guys in the technology world. And you know what? None of these companies, either on the Western side or on the Asian side, is going to be able to say, we don't like it, go and rewrite it. We have to accept whatever they've been given and they have to deal with it. That's the, le- that's the playing field you've got. That's it. Alex Lido has deep roots in the electronics industry. His father and grandfather founded International Rectifier in 1947. Alex eventually ran the company himself for 12 years. He is currently the CEO of EPC, a company that manufactures gallium nitride-based power transistors and integrated circuits. These products are now found in LiDAR systems for autonomous vehicles, in 4G LTE base stations, and DC-DC converters for servers and satellites, and in a wide variety of medical products. There's been a lot of consternation about the end of Moore's Law. Now, I'd spoken with Lido before, and we discussed how Moore's Law had ended for some circuitry a long time ago. Everybody's in a tizzy about uh, Moore's Law coming to an end. Now, 
for a certain class of semiconductors, uh, integrated circuits, uh, Moore's law came to an end a while ago, right? Yeah, and and I think that uh, that's true also for power semiconductors, um, and they they are for different reasons. Uh, and you know, I think that Moore's law in its uh, in its conception by Gordon Moore, it was transistors number of transistors on a chip doubling every year. Um, but I mm-hmm. think that it became a social compact between uh, producers of integrated circuits and consumers of integrated circuits. And, and the consumers expected every year we're going to see a doubling of performance and it's going to come at a, at a lower price. And as a result, consumers, you know, computer manufacturers and designers of all sorts of gadgetry, they, they would actually design in parallel with integrated circuit development uh, in anticipation of higher performance. You know, I'll design my laptop computer, but I'll make sure that it can, you know, use twice as much memory when it comes out a year from now. Now, when Moore's Law started uh, slowing down and then stopping, and and I would contend that it's actually no longer uh, doubling every couple of years and lowering the price, it's now or uh, instead of an and. And so now we see product development that is in series with uh, with new product launches from the semiconductor industry. So there's a, a general slowdown in that whole chain of innovation um, that, that we see. And power semiconductors followed the same path, although not because of a doubling of transistors, but rather of a doubling of current density every few years. And that stopped approximately the beginning of the century. Now, part of the story is uh, silicon as a semiconductor running out of headroom. Uh, but there are other ways to improve performance in semiconductors, uh, alternate semiconductor materials, uh, other constructions, um, and you're a big proponent of using gallium nitride. Yeah, so <clears throat> you know, I, I think that uh, in the world of, of digital electronics, they can go to qubits and and uh, all sorts of things like that. In the world of power electronics, I think that that the solution to you know maintain this this uh, uh, vibrancy in performance really comes from uh, new materials. And there are two materials that are, uh, I think, are the the next generation past silicon, and that's silicon carbide and gallium nitride. Uh, of course, uh, my company, Efficient Power Conversion, does everything in, in with gallium nitride grown as a very thin layer on top of a standard piece of silicon. And uh, the two different materials um, excel in to a different ends of the performance spectrum, yeah? Yeah, look, I think that, that silicon carbide, which is a marvelous material, and there are many companies uh, making good products with that, is really good at higher voltage ranges, um, you know, say uh, above seven, 800 volts, up to thousands of volts, mm-hmm. areas where silicon could never reach. And uh, gallium nitride is really great at 600 volts and down. Uh, making higher power density devices than silicon and also at a lower cost. Uh, so that's dividing up the, the future markets that silicon otherwise has, has dominated. Now we've been talking about power ICs. Uh, you've also have suggested that it might be possible to use gallium nitride in almost a CMOS uh, type of a construction and not there yet. Uh, explain what you're talking about and and where you know where gallium nitride might be able to uh, actually do some really interesting things in the future. 
So uh, gallium nitride is a wonderful material for integration. In silicon, uh, silicon is great for digital integration, but terrible for power integration. And with gallium nitride, you don't have that problem. So you can integrate a bunch of power devices. So you can now build systems on a chip in the world of power that you couldn't do in silicon. Uh, and uh, and we're doing that. And I, I would say that we're redefining what a power semiconductor is. And it's more of a, uh, you know, a combination of power devices along with analog circuitry and digital circuitry. Hmm. Now, in the world of digital circuitry, gallium nitride is great at NMOS. We can do anything, uh, you know, that silicon can do in NMOS and we can do it better. But where the limitation is, is CMOS. And uh, with, with gallium nitride, uh, those holes, you know, the, the positive carriers or P-type carriers just don't go very well in gallium nitride. Right. Uh, now, there are ways that we can uh, probably improve on that. But until we do, we're not going to get CMOS or complementary MOS like in silicon. Are improvements possible? I believe it's possible. We have uh, three different paths that we think each could lead to a success. And when that happens, then, then there's no real good uh, advantage of silicon over, over uh, gallium nitride uh, in, in most logic applications. Let's talk about where gallium nitride is excelling right now. Uh, the, uh, perhaps the, the marquee uh, application is LIDAR. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great application because uh, in order to measure the time of flight of light, you know, lidar is light detection and ranging. Uh, in order to measure the time of flight of light, you have to be really fast. Mm. And and gallium nitride is maybe a hundred times faster than silicon. So we can resolve uh, to you know say millimeter precision objects that are hundreds of meters away using gallium nitride. When if you use silicon, you would just be see this fuzzy sphere about ten feet in diameter. Uh, and that's that's going not just on autonomous cars now, but we see them putting them on robot vacuum cleaners and drones and and just about anything uh, now gets a lidar system on it. And you were even talking about maybe uh, handhelds, mobile phones for augmented reality. Exactly, uh, the, absolutely for facial recognition, augmented reality glasses, where the way you you figure out what reality is, you create a quick digital map of your surroundings, and you do that with lidar. Uh, it's a very simple, fast way to do it. That's fascinating. Uh, now, we've also, there's there's a bunch of other really fascinating, fun things that people have been doing with uh, with gallium nitride. Uh, it's space-hardened, uh, radiation-hardened, so space applications yeah, yeah. and some medical applications. Yeah, we want we to fly to fly to Europa and, and Titan. I guess it was a newly announced thing to go to Titan in space because uh, very, very radiation-hardened. But some of the really cool applications that are more down-to-earth, shall we say, huh. are, um, and, and because you and I are of an age and we're male, we need to have colonoscopies uh, periodically. Uh, and uh, one of the things GAN's allowed to do uh, as, as enabled is miniaturizing an x-ray machine into the size of a pill. And you swallow this thing and it actually takes a, uh, a very, very ultra low dose x-ray of your colon. So you don't even need to purge ahead of time. You don't need to get rid of the food matter because it can tell what's food and what's tissue. Mm -hmm. And it wirelessly sends it to a patch that you wear on your back. Uh, so you to basically, to have a colonoscopy, you take a pill, and three days later, you peel this patch off your back and you send it in a prepaid package. And uh, that's your colonoscopy for now. And uh, it's a whole lot better than a stick up the hoo-ha, which um, Now that you mention it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's approved in Europe. 
that's approved in Europe now. And so, in the uh, U.S. We'll it's see close, it next right? Year and maybe a year away, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, Alex, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, we hope to have you back sometime. All right, Brian, I'd love it. And uh, thank you so much. And now some recent anniversaries of notable technological events in the past. On June 30th in 1947, Bell Labs held a press conference to announce the creation of the first point contact transistor. It was barely noted at the time, but uh, the discovery eventually went on to earn its inventors a Nobel Prize, and um, every electronic device in the world is now based on it. On July 1st, 1979, the Sony Walkman first went on sale in Japan. There wasn't any new technology involved to speak of, but the form factor was unique. It's now one of the most iconic consumer electronics devices ever. True fact, it got developed because Sony founder Masaru Ibuka wanted to listen to opera on long flights without bothering his seatmates. In honor of Ibuka, we're going to take you out with my favorite operatic piece, Rossini's The Barber of Seville. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending July 5th. This podcast is produced by AspenCore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to. Be sure to join us next week for your July 12th weekly briefing on EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.